astronomy. I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 6th of April 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy. And this week our special guest is Dr. Elisabetta Barberio, who is a member of the Experimental Particle Physics Group at the University of Melbourne and working with an international team to detect dark matter deep in a gold mine in southeast Australia. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Dr. Berberio. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well, thank you. It is a pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Elisabetta Barberio, who was awarded her PhD at Siegen University in the Arnsberg region in west-central Germany. Elisabetta is a member of the Experimental Particle Physics Group at the University of Melbourne. Previously, she was a staff researcher at CERN, the European Laboratory of Particle Physics. She was involved with data analysis in the OPAL experiment at the Large Electron-Positron Collider at CERN and has worked on the Higgs boson and ATLAS, which is a particle physics experiment at the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, at CERN. Now, Elisabetta, tell us a little bit about your early years growing up in Europe. Where did you live as a child and how did you develop a love for science? As a child, I grew up in Calabria, on the mountain, on C- in Sila. Sila is the highest high plain in Europe, so in the middle of the winter we had a lot of snow. And I always loved science since I was a little child. I was very curious and always asked a lot of questions. My father was a physician, was a pediatrician, and my mother was a physicist. So she fed me a lot of physics book and uh, related <laughs> scientific uh, information when I was a kid. I always liked science since I was a little kid. Very good. Now, looking at your many publications, Elisabetta, you've recently co-authored papers on Bell 2 at the Super Keck B Accelerator in Japan. And we spoke with Dr. Tom Browder last year about the connections between particle physics and cosmology. Are you still working on Bell 2? And what are we learning from accelerator technologies? Yes, I'm still in Bell 2, and Bell 2 will start data taking next year, so it's a very exciting new experiment. And uh, about Bell 2, we will learn something about why the universe is made of matter, and while at the beginning of the universe we had an equal amount of matter and antimatter, so we will learn where the antimatter goes. So it's a very exciting new experiment, this is, and, and uh, this is how it's related to cosmology and the universe. 
Fantastic. That's one of the big questions. Let's move on to one of your research passions, and that is dark matter. And we recently mourned the loss of Vera Rubin last year. Can you give us a bit of a background on what is our current understanding of dark matter? We know that dark matter exists. We know from gravitational rotation of galaxy. We know from the movement of galaxy or like the bullet cluster. So we know we have a big body of canonical observation that tell us that dark matter can, must exist. And it cannot be, this observation cannot be reconciliated with a modified gravity, a theory that says the gravity as we know or a gravity as written down by Einstein is wrong. So the only explanation that can fit all the body of data that we have from astronomy uh, observation is that there is matter that we cannot see. It's not luminous. It doesn't emit any kind of light in any form and it's called dark matter. So that's what we know. We know that interact gravitationally. We know that the structure formation wouldn't start if we didn't have dark matter. What we don't know, what the dark matter is. We do believe, we particle physicists believe, is a new kind of particle that must have been created with all the other particles at the Big Bang time, but we have no idea of its nature. And so there is a big hunt all over the world to understand what this dark matter particle could be. And you can hunt this dark matter particle in many different ways, looking at astronomical phenomena that looks different from what you expect from normal astronomical sources. You can look at collider if you can create dark matter. You can look also directly at dark matter, direct detection, what we call putting a detector on Earth and waiting the dark matter that interact with our detector. Now, the amount of dark matter that interact with matter is very, very little. However, we have a huge amount of dark matter. If you look at the matter budget of the universe, 25% is the matter that we know, like proton, neutron, electron, our atoms, and all the rest, the, rest, the 75% remaining is all dark matter. So there is a huge amount of dark matter in the universe. But we know what we do, do, do from the astro point of view. We don't know which kind of particle could be or it is. So there is a big search and a big hypothesis, many hypotheses of work. Fantastic. And thank you for clearing up about those alternate theories of gravity. They've always provided a bit of humour along the way. Now, we've heard your very exciting news about a new experiment that has been designed to detect dark matter particles. You have a laboratory deep in a gold mine in Stahl, a small town in southeast Australia. First, can you tell us about your role, the team that is working on this project and the funding behind it? This new dark matter experiment is an experiment that trying to cut to see if we have dark matter looking at the amount of dark matter that interact with our detector and how it change with the season. There is already an experiment in the northern hemisphere that is the only hemisphere that only experiment that claims that they discovered dark matter and the only confirmation can come from the southern hemisphere if we can see the same change of the amount of dark matter particles that reach the detector in summer and winter. From this idea of testing this experiment in northern hemisphere, we decided to do repeat this experiment in the southern hemisphere and to repeat dark matter, to do a dark matter experiment, what we call a direct detection, you need an underground location because otherwise you have too much background, too much cosmic ray that interact with your detector and you cannot see dark matter. The interaction of dark matter uh, with your detector is expected considering the amount of dark matter in our galaxy to be less than one event 
per day per kilogram of detector. So it's very, very tiny. While if you have cosmic ray, you have thousands and thousands of interactions. So we needed to build an underground location. The community, the store community, was very excited about this idea because the mine, the gold mine, was in transition. And so they didn't know what would be the future. So they wanted to do something with the mine over there. And so we started this, uh, this kind of, um, I would say, business together with the Northern Grampian Shire. And we asked for money to the federal government and to the Victoria local government to build the, uh, the laboratory. And both of us and both of the, um, the government gave us money, not through scientific funding, but through the regional development funding. And so we started the negotiation and everything to build the, 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 the laboratory. At the moment, we have all the design and all the technicality for the laboratory. We start the probing of the rock where we will do the laboratory. The laboratory will be built one kilometer underground on one side of the mine and we should start excavation sometime very early this year and then uh, most probably the laboratory will be ready end of the year, beginning of 2018. Fantastic. Now can you describe a bit about the experiment itself and the technologies? Are you using cloud chamber technologies or water tanks? What are the technologies that you're going to be using to detect dark matter? The technology we are using is a technology that uses crystal, sodium iodide crystal. They are quite good to see dark matter. When a dark matter particle hit our crystal, the molecules of our crystal, the crystal emit light. And then we have phototubes that are detectors, that are elements that see light. This particular detector is, as I say, is a solid detector and is crystal. It's really like the crystal on your, on, uh, on your table. It's a very transparent cube, quite nice. We will have about 50 kilograms of this salt, of this crystal salt, and we will put underground, surrounded by what we call a liquid scintillator, so we can remove any kind of spurious events that do not belong to dark matter. And then all this experiment will be shielded even more from cosmic ray for the big thick layer of lead. 20 centimeter wall of lead. The team that will build this detector is the team of the particle physicists at the University of Melbourne, the uh, nuclear physicists uh, at the University of um, Australia National University in INU. There is a team also from the Adelaide University and a team from Swinburne University. Also uh, international collaboration in the University of Princeton. Fantastic. Now, in light of the disappointment that we got from the Lux dark matter detector last year, how important is this current experiment and what are your hopes, Elisabetta? We don't know what dark matter is. And so we have a variety of dark matter detectors that try to see dark matter. For example, they cannot see particles of dark matter that are very light. This experiment measure, trying to see dark matter in a different way. Lux is just doing a, what we call a counting experiment. They have a big xenon uh, tank and weight that one dark matter uh, particle hit the xenon and then they're trying to see if there is any other signal that can be due to the background and eliminate. The experiment that we want to do, on the contrary, is trying to distinguish the dark matter signal from the background, looking at the amount of count that you have in December and in June. If we have dark matter, the number of counts that you have due to dark matter in December and June is different. 
If it's just background, it will be the same. So it, and then we are also probing a much lower mass WIMP in this particular case. So we are really going in an area that LAX didn't explore very much. So there is this signal, as I say, in the northern hemisphere that is quite intriguing, is worth to check. And in any case, this experiment will be quite important because either we confirm the northern hemisphere signal, so almost probably we saw that matter, or we say we don't confirm, but means that this northern hemisphere experiment is seeing some kind of phenomena that is worth to go and study further. Fantastic. Well, there's a lot of people following your progress and wishing you the very best in this experiment, Elisabetta. Microphone is all yours, and you might want to give us your favourite rant or rave about science or education or outreach in astronomy and physics. At the moment, it's really, really exciting to be in fundamental physics because it's a period of discovery in which we are exactly like at the beginning of the last century where everybody thought that they understood everything, electromagnetism was explained <laughs> everything, and then uh, special relativity came about, and then quantum physics came about, and everything changed. Yes. We are not the same. We have this beautiful theory that is the standard model of particle physics that describe fundamental particle and their interaction and has been confirmed to an extreme level. Never th no theory in the humankind has been tested at that level. We even, you know, in 2012, we even discovered the last piece missing of this theory that is the Higgs mechanism, the Higgs yep. boson. Yep. And so we think, you know, at a certain point you can say, yes, okay, this theory explains everything. But then if you look at the universe, you see that this theory describes the fundamental particle that build up our atoms, only 25% of the mass of the universe. But then we have all this dark matter that we don't know what it is. So it's very exciting at the moment because most of the universe, the most of the composition of the universe is unknown. Very exciting times. Yeah, absolutely. It's discovering the nature of dark matter and if you really want to put also the energy uh, then the energy density of the universe, you need also to deal with the, the dark energy that is even larger contribution in the universe. You really see that the unknown universe is much, much, much larger than the known universe. So looking for dark matter or trying to understand dark energy is really exciting. It's the new frontier for fundamental physics. Fantastic. And we're on a very steep learning curve and that's an exciting place to be. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Elisabetta Barberio, for speaking with us. That's fantastic. Have a nice day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Dr. Elisabetta Barberio, who is a member of the Experimental Particle Physics Group at the University of Melbourne and setting up a very exciting dark matter experiment deep in a mine in Stall in southeast Australia. Let's cross now to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave and find out what's up in the night sky this week. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan again. Great to be talking with you again. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week is Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is at opposition on the 8th of April, uh, opposition meaning when the Sun, Earth and the planet are directly in line. And so from the point of view of Earth, Jupiter is biggest and brightest this time. Yep. 
Now, for Jupiter, that's not so exciting. It undergoes very large changes in diameter and brightness as it approaches and goes away from opposition, whereas uh, Jupiter, being much further away and much bigger, has much smaller increases in diameter and brightness. Nonetheless, it's now a perfect opportunity. Jupiter is rising as the sun sets at opposition, and so whole night to have good images of Jupiter. Of course, you do have to wait until it gets sufficiently high above the horizon before, so that the uh, horizon turbulence and murk doesn't interfere. But that means uh, from roughly when the sky is at astronomical twilight, when it's fully dark, you'll have the, the potential for good viewing all night long. Very good. And of course, Jupiter's moons are always putting on uh, nice little displays. So you'll be able to watch Jupiter's moons pass in front of Jupiter, pass behind Jupiter, and sometimes you will see both the moons and their shadows transit across Jupiter. Now, of course, to see the moon and moon shadow transit, you'll need a decent-sized uh, telescope. But even with a small telescope, you'll be able to see the moons dance about and disappear into eclipse or disappear as they go across or behind the planet. And even with binoculars, you'll be able to see the moons dance around Jupiter. So now's a, a really good time to uh, watch Jupiter. If you're following the moon, which is currently waxing, you'll be able to see the moon forming a line with Jupiter and the bright star speaker on the night of the 10th. And then on the 11th, Jupiter, the moon and speaker form a triangle. Now, this will be not a good thing to, act to photograph because the moon is so bright it will drown out Jupiter and speaker at any decent exposure. Yes. But visually, it will look very nice indeed. And, of course, if you can't easily identify Jupiter, which is the brightest yellowish object above initially the eastern horizon and then the northern horizon, which is about a handspan from the bright blue white star speaker, if you're still having troubles working out which object is Jupiter on the nights of the 10th and 11th, you'll be able to use the moon to determine which one of those objects is Jupiter. On the 10th, it'll be the moon, Jupiter and speaker. On the 11th, it'll be Jupiter, speaker, the moon forming a triangle. Fantastic. And we have mentioned in earlier episodes how you can buy a little tripod adapter for about $8 to connect your binoculars to your tripod and have a really good view of Jupiter's moons. Yes, indeed you can. And even if you don't have a tripod adapter, which I have one of these and I heartily recommend them, you can still use something like a table or a fence to stabilise binoculars. So it makes it much easier to follow the dance of the moons. The other thing that you might be wanting to look at with binoculars, if you're living in the Northern Hemisphere, is Comet 41P. At the moment, it's a Northern Hemisphere object only. It's moved up from Ursa Major and now is in the constellation of Graco. And uh, if you're going looking for it on the nights of the 2nd and 3rd, you should be able to see the comet very close to Alpha Draconis, the brightest star in the constellation of Draco. So that will give you a good idea of where it is. Another good object is on the 6th of April. It's just below the Ursa Minor Dwarf Galaxy, so that will be quite nice to look at. Very good. It's closest to the sun on the 12th, so that should be when it's brightest. However, get a lot of interference from the moon around about that time. So you might have to start looking just after the sun sets or after astronomical twilight. Just before the moon rises around about the 12th, you'll have a very narrow window for the moon rises to have your best look at the comet as it passes through Draco. 
fantastic and there's a lot of excitement around at the moment mainly because we've got Brian Cox in Australia at the moment shooting a TV series with a lot of Australian astronomers including Dr Angel Lopez Sanchez who was on our show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so that's going to be fantastic. It starts on the 4th of April and a good showcase of the southern skies and southern astronomy and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, one thing I have discovered in this series is that Australia is pretty famous for its astronomy programs, not only radio astronomy, but visual astronomy as well and all the optical systems we've got here there. A lot of people are coming from all over the world to look through our instruments. Yes. Well, we've got some amazing skies. We've got objects that cannot be studied from the Northern Hemisphere. And we've got a lot of relatively easily accessible uh, dark sky places. So it's a bit of a mecca for uh, astronomers to come and have a look. And we've got some really nice instruments. So Australia is, it plays an important role in a wide range of astronomy from uh, uh, visual to X-ray to, um, to radio. Yes, and there's all of that exciting work happening over at Murchison with the Wide Field Array. The data that's coming out of there is enormous, and at ICRA in Western Australia at Curtin University, they're doing some amazing work finding some wonderful astronomical objects just with a couple of hours of pointing their SKA precursor at various spots in the sky. Yes, yes. Our listeners can participate in, and that's the hunt for Planet Nine. Oh, yeah. There's, there's been a large uh, wide field survey uh, of the uh, southern skies in the area where the hypothetical planet is supposed to be. Now, for those of you who have not uh, kept up with this, Planet Nine is a hypothetical planet which is suggested to be responsible for the orbits of uh, half a dozen objects called the sedenoids, yep. where you have these uh, really strange elongated orbits at very high inclinations to the plane of the Earth's orbit. And there's a couple of possible ways this could occur, but one of the hypothesised ways is a Neptune-sized planet beyond the, the solar system. And they've got an idea of where it could be, but unlike when Neptune was discovered, where Neptune was within one degree of its predicted position, Planet Nine is uh, in a swathe of around about 20 degrees of sky, which is kind of big when you're trying to look for something which is really, really dim. Yes, it looks so, like being about a thousand times dimmer than Pluto. Yes, and so what they've done is they put up a whole series of images from the survey and they're asking volunteers to look at the, the images as they blink them between uh, different times when the images were taken and note down anything that moves. Now, many of the things that will be moving will be known asteroids or outer solar system objects. There might even be one or two new dwarf planets out there, but hopefully someone might, be, might pick up Planet Nine. Yes, I've spent a bit of time on that project myself, Ian. I haven't found Planet Nine yet, but I'm looking forward to discovering it and having it named after me. <laughs> Brendan. I like that. <laughs> very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been fabulous talking with you again. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been fantastic being on again and sharing some of the wonders of the southern sky and the sky in general. Excellent. 
And here is the news for Thursday the 6th of April 2017. ANU astronomers launch public search of the southern skies for the elusive Planet Nine. Back in episode 18 in November last year, we spoke with Dr. Brad Tucker about his research into the expanding universe. And since then, he has been very busy. He and a team of astronomers at the Australian National University have publicly released images taken by the SkyMapper telescope at the university's Siding Spring Observatory in regional New South Wales in the hope that Planet Nine makes an appearance. The 1.3 metre SkyMapper telescope has been doing a complete digital survey of the southern skies, and because it's produced hundreds of thousands of images, we're creating a citizen science project and inviting the public, everyone, to access our images and try to find this planet, he said. The project was launched this week on the BBC's Stargazing Live broadcast from the ANU Siding Spring Observatory. Already, 60,000 people from around the world have classified over 4 million objects in space and identified known minor planets, Chiron and Comachina, so they know their methodology is sound. The ANU team is now investigating four unknown objects that could be candidates for a new planet in our solar system. So why? A large planet is predicted to be hiding on the edge of our solar system because confirmed calculations by Konstantin Batijan and Mike Brown of the California Institute of Technology, Caltech in Pasadena, about a year ago showed that in order to explain perturbations in Pluto's orbit, a planet dubbed Planet 9 is roughly 10 times the size of Earth and 800 times further away from the Sun, and orbiting the Sun every 15,000 years, and it should be visible in our southern skies. Neptune was actually predicted the same way, so there's a lot of historical reasons to believe that this sort of thing is actually quite right, said Dr. Tucker, and you can join in the hunt and perhaps have a new planet named after you. Go to tinyearl.com forward slash Planet Nine Hunt, that's Planet, the number nine, Hunt, all one word. And while we're on citizen science, there's another great project where you can look at Spitzer data and help identify new exoplanets and add to the 3,468 already confirmed exoplanets. Go to tinyearl.com forward slash exoplanet hunt. Our second item. It's via a press release from the Max Planck Institute of Radio Astronomy regarding an exciting discovery by radio astronomers using the 100-metre radio telescope at Effelsberg in Germany. The researchers have identified the largest magnetic fields ever found in the universe are caused by collisions between immense galaxy clusters, and these giant magnetic fields, some of which are millions of light years across, and are a 100 times larger than the Milky Way. Galaxy collisions result in compression of hot cluster gas, creating arc-light features called relics. Since their first discovery in 1970, relics have been discovered in over 70 galaxy clusters so far. Astronomers from Bonn and Tautenberg in Thuringia in Germany zeroed in on four of these relics as part of a new study to determine if they generated any visible magnetic fields. And their findings give us exciting new knowledge about the scale of magnetic fields in our universe. Now we can systematically search for ordered magnetic fields in galaxy clusters using polarised radio waves, said the study's co-author Rainer Beck. Our third item is from the online journal Nature. 
How to hunt for a black hole with a telescope the size of Earth. How do you photograph a black hole? Impossible, you say? These researchers have plans to do exactly that. The astronomers hope to grab the first images of an event horizon, that point of no return. So here's how to catch a black hole. First, spend many years enlisting eight of the top radio observatories across four continents to join forces for an unprecedented hunt. Next, coordinate plans so that those observatories will simultaneously turn their attention to the same patches of sky for several days. Then, collect observations at a scale never before attempted in science, generating two petabytes of data each night. This is the audacious plan for next month's trial of the Event Horizon Telescope, the EHT, a team up of radio telescopes stationed across the globe to create a virtual observatory nearly as big as Earth. And researchers hope that when they sift through the mountain of data, they will capture the first details ever recorded of a black hole at the centre of the Milky Way, as well as pictures of a much larger one in the more distant galaxy M87. The reason this effort takes so much astronomical firepower is that these black holes are so far from Earth that they should appear about as big as a hamburger on the surface of Moon, requiring a resolution more than a thousand times better than that of a Hubble Space Telescope. But even if researchers can nab just a few blurry pixels, that could have a big impact on fundamental physics, astrophysics and cosmology. The EHT aims to close in on each black hole's event horizon, the surface beyond which gravity is so strong that nothing that crosses it can ever climb back out. By capturing images of what happens outside this zone, scientists will be able to put Einstein's general theory of relativity to one of its most stringent tests so far. The images could also help to explain how some supermassive black holes produce spectacularly energetic jets and rule over their respective galaxies and beyond. Our final report is from the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society and features a paper by René Kran Kortwig et al. Using the AAO Mega Plus 2DF spectrograph and the Southern African Large Telescope, these astronomers have just discovered one of the most massive superclusters in the universe hiding behind the Milky Way in the constellation of Vila. This is a massive group of several galaxy clusters, each one containing hundreds of thousands of galaxies. It may be hard to believe that such a huge object could go unnoticed, but it makes more sense when you consider where we live. Our Milky Way has more than 100 billion stars, trillions of planets, and immense colourful clouds of gas and dust, which basically just gets in the way. To peer through it, Cran Kortiwig and her colleagues combined the observatories from several telescopes, the newly refurbished South African Large Telescope, SALT, near Cape Town, and the Anglo-Australian Telescope, the AAT, near Sydney, and X-ray surveys of the galactic plane. The researchers estimate that this Vela supercluster could contain somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 trillion stars. Their calculations also show Vela is about 800 million light-years distant and zooming further and further away from us at a speed of about 40 million miles per hour. In real money, that's 18,000 kilometres per second. This new research can reveal some of the secrets about the origins of our own Milky Way. 
Thank you, Renee, and your team. That's the news for this week. See you in two weeks. Bye now. Radio Wave.